Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite service. Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Did you know that when you share a burden, the load is lightened? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the podcast, is for education only. Some of the subject matter could be triggering for those that are newly grieving or in a poor state of mental health. Please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. This is a different start. And although it's really hard to see, in the background there, just about there, that's me in that picture. It's actually late July, early August in 1976. It's the first time I got to see the remains of my car since that cold night in March. That's the night my lights went out. Now, it's been a hot minute since this actually happened. And yeah, the night my lights went out, but that wasn't in Georgia. <laughs> that would have meant a whole different evening for me. And I think you have to be of a certain age to get that joke. The song, The Night the Lights Went Out, was originally sung by Vicki Lawrence. It was written by Bobby Russell, and that was in 1972. I know Reba McIntyre redid it in 1991, and it's kind of interesting about a man and his wife, the third person in that story. But I'm going to go back a little bit farther than that to start off with, because in doing the research to do this particular podcast, uh, there were a number of things that got me started. And one was speaking to someone a week ago at an event someone who'd had a much more recent accident. Actually, it would have been about nine months since her accident. And she had suffered some possibly permanent damage and massive concussion. And these things are, are difficult to say the least. I had gone through it so long ago that I felt I ought to reach out and we had a conversation about things you can do and things that it took me a ridiculously long time to learn. Things like meditation and visualization and things that help you put yourself back together because there's a lot more that goes on than just cold, hard metal meeting warm, soft body. And We'll get to all of that. Let me just say that after our meeting, this person wrote a post and in it mentioned me and also 
her own accident and said she'd taken on a new view or new perspective of that and decided that she was going to leave she who used to be at her accident site. And just last week, which was almost 47 years after my incident, I came to understand that I not only needed to go back and leave that 20-year-old at the accident site and let her rest, I also realized that each and every time we suffer large trauma and sometimes small trauma, PTSD, physical pain, mental anguish, grief, all of these things can be the small death of who we used to be. And when we soothe ourselves and when we come through the fire that is often grief and loss and pain and anguish and anger and hurt, then we're a new person. And I want to focus on celebrating that new person and going forward with that new person. But I realize in order to do that, I have to go back and put all those others to rest. So that's part of what it's about, celebrating in this podcast the anniversary of that incident long, long ago. In the research that I did about the date, and that was March 20th, 1976, some time after, I believe, two in the morning. Pardon me if I'm not really good on the time frame. I did find some interesting facts, and for anyone that follows the podcast or has seen my personal website, these names and things have cropped up in funny ways before. One of the first things I found out, and uh, with my bent sense of humor, I thought this was pretty cool. On the music charts in the US for that date, the number one song was called December 1963. And the title has brackets after that. In the brackets, it says, Oh, what a night. <laughs> See, for me, yeah, I can definitely say, oh, what a night. Don't think that's what the Four Seasons were thinking about when they wrote the melody and the lyrics for that song. And uh, it truly could not have been more on the nose. Oh, what a night. It was absolutely life-changing and now today in a way it's life-ending for that person I used to be 
another interesting fact on that date was about Alice Cooper. Now, I bet you're wondering, hmm, oh my god, how did you jump to Alice Cooper from here? I'll get to that one later, but let's say he just turned 28 and he had gone down to Mexico and married a choreographer named Cheryl Goddard. Alice Cooper is actually a big part of my backstory and um, he comes into our family story yet again down the road, which is kind of interesting. I'll circle back to that one. So as I said, it was two o'clock in the morning, but I'm gonna go back just a little bit here and tell you it was actually March 20th, just after midnight. I was at home, asleep, when the phone rang. It was someone we knew and he'd been picked up by the police for drinking and driving. See, there was a time back in the 60s and 70s and uh, it seems an awful lot of people drove drunk. That's a sad fact, but that's how it was then. I understand it was also a leap year, but I don't think I knew that then, and I don't think it actually matters. So back to uh, my friend at the event. A few days after the event, she wrote an article because she got some good news. She was able to hike again and she'd be able to do yoga and other things that she really loved. And she noted that in talking, uh, her reflections after our discussion and her good news, that's when she talked about not going to any longer bring along that person she used to be. She left her at the accident site, as I said. I have to tell you, when I read those words, they were so powerful, they hit me like a sledgehammer. You see, I had never realized for all these years, I too lamented and referred to and daydreamed about the person I used to be. The person I was prior to my accident. And it's a little hard to make out, but that's a very old style ski rack on what used to be the back of my Mustang. Because we had uh, season passes to the ski resorts and I rode horses and I figure skated and I did all kinds of things in my youth. And in all honesty, it took me 39 years to even openly deal with my accident. 39 years to start the process to open up about forgiveness that had to be given all around. You see, I forgave the young man that hit my car right there on the highway. It certainly was not his fault. And I'll explain why I believe that. I realized after those 39 years in another story that you can read about 
uh, that has to do with zombie butchers. I understood and forgave the policeman for saving himself and leaving me on that highway to be crushed between three cars. And finally, latest of all, I forgave myself for being there, for going out in the middle of the night to help someone when I was almost seven months pregnant, when I was in no condition to be standing on the side of a highway, much less standing between two vehicles on a darkened curve on a highway at two o'clock in the morning. And yet, as I sit here retelling the story from the perspective of this anniversary, I can't help but smile at all of the changes, mostly to me. How incredible most of it's happened in just this last decade. In fact, I only told my story for the first time in 2013. You see, until 2013, I was embarrassed and ashamed of some of the trauma I had suffered in my life and all the angst and uh, horrible happenings that I believed I had put my family through. I thought for decades that I was stalled in life. I should be ashamed because I must just be a failure. And yet, for those decades, I had come to terms with the fact that I was the central character. I was what was going on, or I was at the center of what was going on in my own life, and I needed to understand what that meant. Did I have control? Was there something I could do to change that? And lo and behold, after 2013, I learned that, oh, no, 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 no. I was not a victim. I was front and center in my life. And as long as I took the lessons from the mistakes that I made, then it was onwards and upwards. However that shaped out. See, I was researching everything that happened to me and very slowly, in my estimation, way too slowly, I'm incredibly impatient. I was rebuilding this puzzle of my life to get to this new life. And now, on this anniversary, with this podcast, and armed with the incredible insight given me by my friend, Kimothy, I am able to lay those other me's to rest where they were most at risk, where they need to be 
And as I do, I make sure that I respect each of those moments of trauma, those difficult times in our lives when we're children, those sometimes material moments that send out our entire lives, our access spinning, and often put us so far out of kilter. It can be hard to even think of ever returning. And yet what I now see is it's not so much a matter of returning as reinventing. I think reinventing is an incredibly good thing. And I think it's the only thing one can do when one does not have the option to go backwards. You see, I, I only think I understood things kind of peripherally. I didn't realize the point of this new being was that the only thing you need to bring with you are the skills that are beneficial and the lessons that you learned that you can take with you to continue to go forward. You see, we, I, didn't need to drag all the baggage of how I got here, what had happened, and the boo-hoo-hoos, and the if-only, and the, oh, yes, uh, <laughs> Uh, that should have been different, etc., etc., etc. As my friend realized, she just needed to lay the she she used to be to rest there, back at the site of that trauma. And once you do, once you lay that used to be to rest, and you can pack it away because when you carry the memories from the past that are joyful and can add to your gratitude cup, that's a good thing. When you carry the traumas and the garbage along with you, it just drags you down. And when you're dragging all the used to be's with you, oh my God, it's crowded, uncomfortable and a real drag. So learning these things is wonderful. And coming to terms with this, it's almost a little like you're having to put those versions of you to rest and you have to do it lovingly with thanks for the good things that you learned, for the skills you get to bring forward. And you need to do it with understanding and forgiveness for yourself, for the things that weren't so good, for the things you thought were mistakes, and for the things that you perhaps wish never happened. Yet, when you go forward with positivity and empathy and kindness as your new person, embracing that new you, you're in fact increasing or increasingly becoming that better you each and every time. And that's at the core of all the layers that make up you and I. And that's really incredible when you think about it. And the more I think about it, 
the more I'm documenting in my head the times, the trials, the traumas that led to a reinvention, a restart, if you will. The more I understand that often those lessons were meant to give us enough of an understanding that we could have empathy for those who may have to fail again and go through more trauma or go through that difficulty, that illness, that devastation, that loss. And if we, you know, build a toolbox of those skills and bring those forward with us as we lay our old selves to rest, our used-to-be selves, in their appropriate places, we can be enriched by what they gave us. And what an incredible gift it is to be able to have this hindsight. As much as there is no going back, you should no longer have a feeling of a need to go back. You're going to shake off that needing to be who you used to be. And when you acknowledge the new you, there's a joy from understanding that this new you is, is a whole new opportunity. Going forward is better. You're now a version with more skills, more empathy, more kindness, more concern for your fellow humans, and more ability to serve well those around you. And do it in a way that is most beneficial to all, including you. Because what is it that they say? You can't pour from an empty cup. And like gently laying each of our used to be me. You can't pour from an empty cup. So let's fill our cup with all the good things from all those pieces in our past and take them forward into the new you. Then whether your life has one or two or 20 reinventions, restarts, those skills that you take forward can, can only enhance what you do when you use them well in the service of others. So in my case, when I have had many, many uh, past used to be me's and I get to look at them differently now each of them very very differently this is an incredible lesson that I am learning and am so grateful for and with that lesson in mind I'm now going to recount the story of March 20th 1976 from this perspective. Now I'm able to view those that were part of that tableau with me in a very different light. I now know that the policeman, Sergeant Campbell, the officer who pulled me over because my lights weren't on and he requested I turn them on. See, I had to explain to him that prior to doing so, if I turned them on, my car would stop and we'd have to restart it, getting jumper cables and attaching them to the battery. I at least knew that. 
He informed me he didn't have any booster cables, and at that time, we weren't that far away from a service station named Ahmed Sunoco. It was at Bank and Albion, and I rather forcefully demanded. He stopped my car. He could just go back and get the booster cables to restart it because he didn't have any in his vehicle. At that time, I asked him to set up some flares because my car was in the right-hand lane of the highway on a curve. And he said, don't worry, it won't take that long. And it didn't. He came back very quickly. When he came back, he told me that he didn't know anything about booster cables. And so I asked him again to set up some flares. I'm quite short. And when he got out of his cruiser, I realized he was quite tall. He came up the side of the highway on the shoulder and I was on just in the left-hand lane of the highway. We both got between the cars. So he helped me put up the hood of my Mustang and he put up the hood on his cruiser and they were hood to hood. I facing into my Mustang engine and showing him where to attach the booster cable. Again, he was at the side closest to, to the shoulder of the road. My car was stuck completely on the road because it was so much snow, there was no way to get onto the shoulder. I was facing back towards town on the, the uh, lower end of the curve with my hand on the booster cable. Being as short as I am, I couldn't see over the hood of my car. In the blink of an eye, I saw lights hit the curve. And that's really the last clear thing I saw. I heard what I later understood was crunching metal and felt blistering pain. It felt like I was being scalded by an iron. And the only thing I could think of, and I remember kind of flying through the air thinking it seemed I was going in slow motion and I could feel the hood going up on this giant fur coat I'd been wearing. And I felt a, a tug pressure on my leg. I now know that it was one of my clogs flying off and the searing pain I felt was the engine of my Mustang tearing through my left leg. It took out a chunk of my left leg from below the knee all the way up the inside of my thigh to the bone. I came to and opened my eyes and my view was somewhat obstructed and I couldn't figure out why until I realized it was my arm standing straight up in the air like I was saluting somebody. It was so disorienting because I was on my back and yet it felt like something was lodged under my left shoulder. I felt, I think the only word to describe it is like a pretzel. I felt disjointed, which is a weird word to use. I understand I was fading in and out and I was bleeding profusely. 
From the waist down, all I could feel was this searing, searing pain. You know when you have a blister on your heel and it pops and that open, kind of burning pain? Well, it seemed like everything in my legs was just this open blister, all-encompassing, searing pain. It seemed to take on a life of its own, and it was filling the space where my left leg should have been. My right leg was also in pain, but it was a different kind of pain. Now, it was a really long time that I lay there, and I think I'm very lucky because of a couple of things. One, it was so incredibly cold that it was making things freeze, which made it a little easier for me to remain alive. There were no cell phones. There wasn't even a phone booth out there on the edge of Seaverite Road and Highway 31. There wasn't even a street light. It was so very dark and foggy, weirdly foggy. We found out later that at the airport, they had acknowledged at that time of morning, the visibility was nil. It turns out I was actually lying two lanes over on the highway and the young man who hit my car, which ultimately hit me and then hit the police car, separated and that's what catapulted me up into the air. The young guy who was in his vehicle got out and after a cursory check on me, he ran up the road to what was then Jerry's Steakhouse. It was a big steakhouse type restaurant on Highway 31 and they had their house attached to the restaurant at the back. That was very lucky for me because Kevin, the young man who'd hit my car, he banged on the door until he woke the people that lived there so that they could call an ambulance. In the meantime, gosh, I don't know where they appeared from, but some people appeared around me on the road. I don't know where they were going or where they'd come from, and to this day I never got a chance to thank them. But I also want to say I'm heartily sorry to the lovely lady that I swore at, because as I lay there with my arm standing straight up in the air, a woman appeared and started holding my hand and she was squeezing my hand very tightly and every time she squeezed it felt like my shoulder was coming apart from my body. She was holding on to my right hand and that hand was attached to an anteriorly dislocated shoulder. She kept saying, you're going to be all right dear. The ambulance will be here soon. You're going to be all right. And then I guess the pain would knock me out and I'd come to and we'd do it all over again. The second or third time, that poor woman got an earful of me swearing at her. Let go of my fucking hand because it hurts so bad. The guy in my car, who I guess was also in shock, 
said, oh, Elaine, don't swear at her. I kept thinking about that, I think, as I passed in and out. <laughs> Neither she nor I understood just how far out and my shoulder had been dislocated. That pain just rocketed through me every time she squeezed my hand. It got so bad, it, it was the one thing that would knock me unconscious, which was probably a good thing. I don't know how long it took the ambulance to get there. I know it was long enough that a few of my toes were almost frostbitten by the time we hit the hospital. My shoes were somewhere up the highway. They were just clogged, so they flew off when I went flying through the air. And uh, this is part of another much bigger story. But as I flew through the air, I felt my hood go up to cradle my head. It was like I was being placed very gently on that highway. And to this day, even in one of the accident reports, it was noted that my head should have split like a melon. I'll never forget that term, but it was because the asphalt was so frozen and that report from the airport had said the visibility was next to zero and it was about minus 30 Fahrenheit. I do have to reiterate that the cold was actually beneficial because it slowed the bleeding somewhat, I guess, from the giant piece that had been ripped out of my leg and the bones were broken in both my legs. I understand I had a hairline skull fracture that was, thank God, just hairline, and I believe that's due to the wolf fur coat. I had quite a number of traumas to my interior organs and soft tissues. One of the toughest pieces that I didn't actually learn uh, for a few days was at some point and they took my baby and ended my almost seven month pregnancy. You see at the hospital, they didn't give me the news all at once. Every couple of days they would come in and give me one more piece. Like, oh, by the way, you've had some damage to your internal organs. And a few days later, oh, and by the way, you have broken bones in your legs. No details, just broken bones. And, well, something else was missing or broken or damaged. And I, I do understand. I think it was pretty wise on their part. Um, I was being kept in two casts, which were basically from my feet to my hips. And those were on both legs and they had my right arm uh, basically wrapped to my body after resetting my shoulder and every day the nurses would come into my room my right arm was strapped to my body so I wasn't really moving a great deal and they'd come in as I said and, and roll down my bed so that I was flat and they'd put a pillow sort of on my chest and then they'd start working. As I understood it later, they had put a like a window in the cast on my left leg. I never got to look in there, not for those first five weeks. 
And as they said, they'd come in every day and they'd work for half an hour or so and they'd put things in and take things out. There was so much going on in that little window that I couldn't see into. By the end of the first week, there was this really odd smell. The smell you don't easily forget. It started to permeate the air around me and it always seemed to get worse after they opened the window on my left leg. I didn't know it at the time, but in hindsight, I now know that my leg was dying. And as the tissue died every day, they would go in and do what they could to debride the area. They'd get rid of the dying gangrenous flesh to try and keep things clean from the, when they were going to be able to do some plastic surgery. It was week three, I think, when I was explained that they would be doing some plastic surgery on my leg. I didn't put two and two together. I didn't really understand why they would be doing plastic surgery on my leg. Funny thing was, uh, the year before, I'd taken a quick fall off my bike. I had this really cool English racing bike that I used to ride around all the time. And it had what we used to call rat trap pedals. They were little razors, you know, like teeth on the pedals. I was riding through the neighborhood and this car went through a stop sign. So I had to stop my bike really quickly. And as I got down off the bike, the rat trap pedal sliced through my calf. I never liked stitches or anything like that because I hated needles. So I just stuck my sock with some bandages and put on my shoes and off I went. I wore that for a day or two until I realized I was leaving blood on the floor. And they made me go to the emergency. Uh, I was 19 at the time, going on 19. I was full of bravado and I'd already had a number of losses in my life. I tended to be a bit of a rebel. As I was brought into the little emergency cubicle, there was a man there. He had on a houndstooth jacket with big leather patches on the elbows and didn't look like a doctor or a nurse. So I said, who are you? And he said, who are you? I thought, wow, how, how did this guy sneak in here? And he said, oh, just settle down. I'm the vet from the Alta Vista Animal Hospital. This is my day off and I'm helping. I'm giving back. I said, yeah, well, you're not touching me. He said, well, then you can just bleed your way out of here. He gave as good as he got. And I said, all right, well, I don't like that fleet freezing stuff. I don't like needles. And he said, okay, I'll make you a deal. I'll sew your leg up and I'll do half with the freezing and half without. And you can tell me what you like better after. I had to grin and bear it because he proceeded to do just that. I can tell you here and now, I'll take the freezing anytime, thank you very much. He put 72 very, very precise stitches in my leg. He was very neat and very tidy. And I didn't learn until five days after my accident. His name was Dr. Labo and he was a plastic surgeon. He's the one that sewed my leg up. 
and the first time he came into my room, it took me a few moments to realize who I was looking at. But I didn't say anything. I was pretty much in, in a cast from my neck down, so it's not like I could move. And he came in, and he stood at the bottom of the bed, and he said, Well, you look familiar, kid. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> but I didn't say anything. He looked at me again, and then he came up the bed, put the pillow in place on my chest like everybody else did, looked into what I assume was this window thing, put it back, looked up at me and said, okay, well, it will be tough, and you ain't gonna be Betty Grable. I said, so I can't insure my legs for a million dollars? He goes, wow, I didn't think you'd know who Betty Grable was. I said, actually, she was one of my father's heroines. My father was stationed in Egypt. My father was a peacekeeper. They had him on ham radio for the first few days I was in hospital because I was already married. So I had to have a death certificate before they put him on a plane home to be here for my funeral. With that smart crack about Betty Grable, Dr. Laval walked out of the room. About three minutes later, he came huffing back into the room and stood at the end of the bed, pointing at me, and he said, Huh, well, I guess you know I'm not a vet. And he walked out. Stanley's been in and out of my life for the next 20 or 30 years, and I have some really interesting stories about him. Those are definitely for another time. I stayed in that hospital until late June. And I only got out for three weeks before I had to come back and have my gallbladder removed. And that was the beginning of a lot of repeated in and out and in and out and in and out. There's a lot more about the accident and the plastic surgery and the debridement surgeries and all of that. It's on my website, my personal site. But today, I just wanted to talk about the anniversary because I'm the only one left from that frozen highway at 2 in the morning on March the 20th, 1976. I found out that Sergeant Campbell died in 2018. I found out he'd been in the Navy before he was a placement. It was only in 2016 that I learned to forgive him because, you see, I learned his limbic system took over. He didn't leave me there on that highway to be crushed intentionally. His body just took him to safety as best it could, because that's what our bodies do. They try to save us. They're meant to try and save us, because survival is our prime motivator. And had I known that back then, or at any time over the next 30 years, I know I would have forgiven him. Perhaps by extension, me. I'm sure there were plenty of factors at play for that man in not coming to the hospital ever to see me. I'm sure he was advised by the police service as there was a lawsuit involved. You see, I went to bat for the young man who hit my car because he didn't stand a chance. He came around the curve in that highway and hit a car that was directly in his lane. 
There were no flares set up. There were no lights on the curve. There was no way he could have known that my car was there. The person who was in my car. Well, we have to thank God that he was in fact drunk. And that is what saved him from being hurt as the car crumpled. He slid into the wheel well on the passenger side and avoided being hurt. Weirdly, he was, I guess, feeling responsible for what happened that night and went out the very next night and was arrested on the very same road by the very same officer that had arrested him the night before when I went to pick him up in the drunk tank. That night at the police station, he was in the drunk tank with Kevin. Kevin was sober when they let him go. And now he too, although younger than me, he's also dead. I also have to say, I didn't understand, or I guess get over the accident well enough until 2015 when I finally allowed myself to feel some anger for being dragged out in the middle of the night and to forgive the guy in my car for his part in this accident. And the youngest person involved in the accident at the scene was Kevin. Kevin became a good friend. He dated a good friend of mine and he visited me at the hospital a lot. And there were a lot of surgeries to do with this accident over the next five years. And Kevin was often there. I was pretty much, as always, in a cast on one leg or the other for those five years. But against all odds, I walked again. Things are different. I don't have any kneecaps. I don't have any cartilage. And I've gained some very cool bionic parts since the accident, along with a much better life perspective. And I am ever so grateful for being here today. I also want to say thank you to my friend, Andrea. See, Andrea was my friend who died when I was 16. And my incident happened on that highway, directly in front of Andrea's grave. That's partly why I feel that it was her helping me to not have my head smash like a melon the night the lights went out. And right, not in Georgia. And I want to thank you for indulging me in being able to acknowledge this anniversary and acknowledge the long road back and this long road ahead. And there have been other bits of trauma and grief and loss that I have gone through since then. I've died twice, so there's that, which is a little different and a whole different story. I suppose, however, I'm no longer carrying forward any of the needs of those I used to be. Each of she or her 
I'm going to spend all this anniversary day laying to rest in their various places so that I can go forward with the lessons and the learnings as this new me. The me who finds joy in every breath, who takes and nurtures happiness where, wherever I am. I try to be empathetic and kind and I ask forgiveness from any that I have inadvertently harmed because the one true lesson I've learned is to be grateful for every moment we have. And that doesn't mean that every moment is wonderful and it doesn't mean that there aren't difficult days. You see, I've learned to manage my pain and manage the mental blips that you get after living through trauma and trauma and trauma. And I'm pretty confident that humor and being able to laugh at oneself is an incredible gift that you should definitely put in your toolbox because it can help you get through damn near anything. There's one other little tool that I find most useful. It's allowing yourself to wallow. Because there are just some times when things can become a little too much, a little too close, a little too real, a little too painful. This tool I want to offer you on this anniversary. Give yourself permission to wallow, to whine, to boo-hoo, to whatever, to poor me, have a pity party about your pain, your loss, your unhappiness, your breakup, whatever it is. But I want you to give yourself a finite time frame, be it half an hour, an hour, half a day, a day. I'm not talking about true grief or true loss. There are no time frames for those. I'm talking about those times when you just can't get outside of the negative you. The you that is just, you know, boo-hoo, boo-hoo, poor me, whatever. So you know what? Don't, don't try to get away. Make time for those yous as well. Honor that part of you. Okay? It isn't the one you want to show to the world. It's not the one that you trot out at parties, and it's not the one that you want to be your face to the world. But what you have to do is allow that part to have their little pity party, to wallow for a bit. But when you give them a set time frame and their time is up, you get to love them and send them on their way back into you. So the yous that are joyous and that are positive and that take control and choose how you spend your days are in the driver's seat. We all have these myriad bits of ourselves that are all part of who we are. And if we take the lessons from each and every one of them, and if we allow them to grow with us in understanding and in joy and in happiness and gratitude, then they too, over time, 
will come to understand the new us, have a little more enjoyment in their part of our lives. And the last thing that I want to say on this anniversary is that a lot of what I do is dedicated to ending the silence, the stigma, and the shame around suicide and mental health. And that's what made it this long. What took me 47 years to acknowledge this incident and acknowledge that there were learnings and lessons that I have taken that I am incredibly grateful for. And I want to acknowledge that. I want to acknowledge all is forgiven. I've even forgiven myself for being at the side of that road, for going out at two in the morning, for all of those things that caused me to be in a place to be so badly injured, so horrifically. And I've learned to forgive, to forgive me for the loss of my child, for being angry about it, for wallowing about it, for having a totally bent sense of humor about it. The bottom line is this, I'm going forward. I'm still learning to love myself and have the confidence to go forward as I am now. I try to serve as best as I can in this world in the way that I believe is my purpose. And I thank you so very much for listening. I ask you to make the very most of your today, every day, and I'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite service. Suicide Zen Forgiveness was brought to you by Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you on page one in the search results. And also by Canada's keynote humorist, Judy Croon, the motivational speaker, comedian, author, and stand-up coach at Second City. On the stage, Judy draws from her wealth of performance experience, wit, and insight to entertain, inform, and inspire in her dynamic keynotes and half-day workshops.